Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Curator's Choice. This is your host, Ayla Anderson. And before we get started today, I have a few things to share with you. So normally my podcast produces an episode every first and third Tuesday of the month. And during the month of September and October, I will continue doing those, of course. However, for the in-between weeks, I'm going to be doing some fun little creative bonus episodes. So During the month of September, we have today's episode, and then I'm also going to do an episode about the Captain Avery Museum in Maryland. And then for the month of October, I'm planning on doing kind of a spend your Halloween month in Weston, West Virginia. So there, we're going to have an interview at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which I'm sure some of you have heard of before. And then we're also going to be talking about the Museum of American Glass, which sounds interesting enough, but I have to say there are some of the most passionate people there who work there and volunteer there about glass. So I had a lot of fun doing that episode, but then I also have some fun in between episodes as well. So we're going to have a great next two months jam-packed with all different kinds of episodes. And the purpose of this is that by the end of October, I'm going to be setting up a Patreon page. And that way I can keep producing those bonus episodes for the Patreon. And you can kind of get an idea of what material is actually going to be present on that if you are interested in supporting my podcast with some small donations. And I'm going to have really, really cheap, easy options there for you guys. So yeah, if you feel like supporting it in that way, that's great. And if you feel like supporting it just by being a continuing listener, that is also amazing. I really appreciate you guys. So for today, we are going to be all the way up in New York. And we're going to be talking about the Underground Railroad. And of course, there's going to be the webpage that I produce with a blog post for each episode at www.curatorschoicepodcast.com. And I'm going to be sharing pictures throughout the weeks of different things that we talk about on Instagram and on Facebook. So if you are interested, check those out. And we're going to go ahead and get going. So we are at the Niagara Falls Underground Railroad Heritage Center with Joe Malik, who is the Visitor Experience Specialist. Did I get all of that right? Yep. What do you do here and what is this museum? So the majority of my job uh, is giving tours to the public, to any groups that come in. We get school groups, um, community groups, um, family reunions, uh, and then, you know, typical selling tickets at the desk and selling stuff in the gift shop. Yeah, that kind of stuff. The like less glamorous part of the job. Yeah, um, and I actually do, um, I'm our communication specialist as well, which is, I'm sure, how you found me. Exactly, I look exactly. up for the communication specialist. Exactly, <laughs> so I take care of all our social media, our newsletters, um, all of that, and basically just help get the word out about us. So when you're saying Underground Railroad, Let's, first of all, we'll clear that. <laughs> what was the Underground Railroad? So, very important to note, not underground, not a railroad, right? It was neither of those two things, which was very misleading, but exactly. it was done for a reason. <laughs> yes. So, Underground Railroad was a secret network of freedom seekers and safe houses and people and places 
that those freedom seekers could then use to get from slavery to freedom. And I will add uh, a little piece about language here, actually. So here at the museum, we've made really conscious choices about language. So I've already said freedom seekers. That's really about returning agency to the folks who were undertaking these uh, challenges. So we have freedom seekers saying that, well, they're seeking freedom themselves. They didn't wait for anyone else to come free them. They didn't wait for Abraham Lincoln to come along. They didn't wait for the 13th Amendment. Any chance, any opportunity that they had to secure their own freedom, they took it. Or freedom for others as well. Exactly, yes. Uh, so we absolutely try and demonstrate that through our language because the other term that we most often hear is fugitive slaves, which is a super negative connotation attached to that, right? Saying that mm -hmm. they're fugitives, they're on the run from the law, they did something bad, and it's our immediate thought of that. Um, but if the law was the one enslaving them and denying them freedom, was it really such a terrible thing that they broke it? Well, and I think what happens a lot of times when you're talking about the different ways to appropriately, like the appropriate terminology to use, I will say that, you know, over time it does change. Mm -hmm. And I think that some people do get a little bit frustrated because they're like, oh, I just, I just don't know what's right anymore. But it is really important to make those distinctions because you're changing the entire idea about slavery and people who are enslaved, freedom seekers. Yes. So you're, you know, mm -hmm. you're kind of trying to be a little bit more politically correct, but really it's just being compassionate and mm -hmm. trying to put yourself in a place where you're showing that you're understanding exactly. a little bit more about the situation. So mm -hmm. I think it's important that we do have these kinds of talks mm -hmm. about the appropriate terminology and it will, it might change again. Yeah. And it might be frustrating that you have to learn a new, a new thing, but I mean, our language is already changing all the time anyways. So yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's honestly just another opportunity to learn something new. So exactly. And that's yeah. what we're all here for <laughs> is yes. to be learning. So we have a few really cool stories that we wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. This heritage center is more about the heritage of things. So yes. though there are not a lot of particular artifacts that you have here, mm -hmm. you do have a few, we will include those, mm -hmm. but we wanted to focus more on two stories of you know people around and about the underground railroad but you guys do throw us for a loop because you are literally attached to a railroad which is kind of unfair <laughs> i know i know we do get some confused folks coming in the door with that um so yeah no our center is located in the 1863 customs house which is located um at the end of what used to be the international suspension bridge uh, which was one of the only bridges spanning the Niagara Gorge at the time um, and the first to carry a rail line. Um, so goods and people would be traveling across this um, and naturally the customs house rose out of that. That rail line is still running today, so we have an Amtrak station here, yeah. So you which, have a railroad at your underground railroad that's yeah. not actually a railroad. Yep. <clears throat> All right, I see you. <laughs> mm -hmm. We just like to keep it interesting, keep you on your toes. Definitely. So we walked through your exhibits and saw some of the mm -hmm. things that you have. I mean. We, we haven't got a chance to really delve in. We're gonna go after this interview and check it out. But I mean, it's a really beautiful space and you guys have some amazing artwork and some videos, a lot of interactive things. Mm -hmm. So when you first walk in, it's gonna be one of the stories that we're gonna first talk about, which mm -hmm. is kind of a, a screen that has interactive play. Yes, so there's a bunch of different little portraits on that on a map of the city and visitors can choose any one of those faces and read their story. And it kind of shows up on this huge screen and it's quite beautiful because you actually had an artist who recreated yeah. the stories. Yeah, E.B. Lewis. Um, he's a, an award-winning fine artist and illustrator. Um, he's 
you might be familiar with him from lots of children's books he's illustrated, some of which are in the gift shop. Shameless plug. Hey, no, that's what this is all about. <laughs> <laughs> no shameless about it. Throw it out there. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so the first story, um, and I show this to every tour group that I do, um, is the story of Nancy Berry. Uh, she's brought to Niagara Falls in 1837 with her enslavers. Um, they're on their honeymoon. Uh, they still want their enslaved servant to serve them while they're on honeymoon. So they bring Nancy along with them. She is told that she has the day to do as she likes. So she takes full advantage of that. A waiter helps her from the Cataract House uh, Hotel where they're staying. And she is able to get down to the ferry, which at this point is the only way to cross the gorge um, and the river. The suspension um, bridge had not been made yet. Correct. The suspension bridge came in 40, 1848. Um, and she crossed in 1837. Okay. So she's a decade too early. But she gets across on the ferry um, and is able to get established in Toronto. So how, is, how did that work? I mean, she, you know, I, we talked about this a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. but people usually imagine, you know, enslaved individuals running in the dark of night mm-hmm. with ratted clothes, no shoes, like sneaking, mm-hmm. dogs howling in the background. Um, trying to get across, but that's really different from what her experience was. Yeah, so Niagara Falls brings us this really unique opportunity to look at the Underground Railroad because what's happening here is that enslavers are bringing their enslaved servants with them from all over the country. They're here for as tourists to see the falls. And Niagara Falls um, must have been pretty pretty popping at that time. Exactly, right? Because I mean, we think of what's around now and. We have a lot more, right? It just in general around the world, you know? And that would have been something that's like, wow, novel. I really haven't, you know, there's not an amusement park to go to instead of, right? So yeah, there's a ton of people coming here um, in the 1800s to see the falls. I can actually show you this. We have uh, scanned pages from the from Cataract House registries. Those are all available down at the Niagara Falls Public Library, but we just have the scanned copies because we don't want to mess those up, right? Um, and we have some names highlighted, and one of those names is Abraham Lincoln. He came and stayed here in 1857. Uh, so when we say people from all over, we really mean it. Um, now, for those enslaved servants, though, it creates an opportunity. They're now on the doorstep of Canada, which they know to be free, right? So with someone like Nancy, let's say, maybe she's thought about it already before coming up here, but I kind of like to use this visual, like I said, visual only, of folks who've seen Downton Abbey. When the family travels and they bring their servants with them, the servants go talk to the other servants. Uh, they go down to the kitchens. They go get things ready, right? Behind the scenes kind of thing. Ample Nancy- opportunity to talk. Exactly, right? Um, I also like to encourage folks to think, like, how do you talk when your boss is around versus how when they're not around, right? It's a lot different. So when Nancy, you know, she's got to set things up for her enslaver while she's going out and having fun, Nancy's still continuing to work because that's what she's there to do. Uh, so... Perhaps she goes down to the kitchens and to get a pitcher of water so that her enslaver can wash her face. In doing so, she winds up talking to the waiters, and the waiters are all, all African-American men, by the way, and they're like, hey, we have connections, and we can get you to Canada. And she goes, heck yeah, get me out of here. Um, and they figure out a way what's best for her to get her out of there. And I noticed in the, in the little video that we watched when you first mm-hmm. come in, it was talking about the clothing that she was wearing, how she was completely mm-hmm. dressed and was able to blend into the crowd. Mm-hmm. She, was she wearing, I mean, did, was it clothes that they provided her? Where did she get these clothes? I, obviously, I doubt that they were hers. 
Uh, no, they actually likely were. So, really? Right. So a lot of times, um, I know certainly it's the story I got in elementary school, right, of uh, enslaved fo folks working in, in fields, not dressed very well, probably barefoot, right? But that wasn't the only job that uh, enslaved people did. One of those jobs is going to be working in a house, serving the family, whether that's with food, you know, helping them dress, washing their stuff, all different kinds of stuff. So Nancy's likely working as something like a lady's maid. Well, um, and I guess it would make sense as well that if you if you had your own slave, then you would want them to rep, you know, be a representation of your wealth and status. So if there were one that was having to go around in, in public and things and be seen by other people of the house, mm -hmm. I guess it kind of makes sense that you'd want them to, to look well, even though. Exactly. Right. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it from that aspect before. Yeah. So she, she put on her own clothes. Mm -hmm. She blended into the crowd. And I mean, really, she just she just followed the instructions of the men at the cataract house mm -hmm. and hopped on a ferry. So, yeah. So I will say so. In addition to this idea of, well, Niagara Falls is presenting an opportunity because of its tourist destination and its location, um, there's also going to be the fact that there's a free black community here. There's a blended society. Folks are used to seeing people walking around. If she's dressed adequately and that whole idea of, you know, fake it till you make it, if she acts like she belongs, she's going to fit in. There's some stuff that doesn't make it into all the videos. Uh, for Nancy, for instance, we have some more information. There's an actual crowd because there's some sort of festival happening that day, so there are a lot of people moving around. And then, yeah, she's able to just get down to the ferry, which is how you would cross the river at the time. She pays the ferryman her little, little fee, gets in the boat, and gets rowed across. There's likely contacts in Canada then who help her navigate from that point. Um, but yeah, for her, it's... It's seemingly that easy, right? Well, and what is, do we have any record of what she does after she actually makes it to Canada? So, yeah, so we have, um, we know that she wrote her sister who lives back in Missouri. Um, we also know a little bit more about her sister, um, which is not told here because her sister doesn't travel through the falls, but uh, they could both read and write. Uh, they grew up, their mother taught them their whole lives. You know, if you get a chance for freedom, you take it. I, I whenever I think of Nancy's story, I think, She's got to have her mom's voice in the back of her head the entire time she's here. Yeah, encouraging her along. Exactly. And while, while on the surface we go, oh, it was really easy for her to, to leave, like, it still had to be terrifying. Well, because the consequences, if she would have gotten caught, would have been very, very bad. Exactly. Um, and those are only going to get worse over time, right? Nancy's sister, her name is escaping me at the moment, okay. but uh, she actually petitions in court for her own freedom, wins the case, and then goes on to petition for their mother's freedom. And again, I can't remember if she gets it or not. But the sister writes a little book at the time. Um, and you can actually access that for free on like Project Gutenberg. So I did a little bit of research and I did find the mother's name was Polly and the sister's name was Lucy Ann Delaney. And just like Joseph said, I found her book that she had written about her family's story on the Project Gutenberg. And I'll share the link for the book in the show notes, but it's a really short book and it's really amazing. I read through it and it's called The Struggles for Freedom and it was written by Lucy Delaney. And as I said in it, she goes through kind of her backstory with her family and what, what ends up happening 
throughout their lives and their fight to freedom. So she does talk about the escape of her sister, Nancy Berry. And I'm going to read to you a little excerpt from the book that were apparently Nancy's own words that she had told to her sister. And her sister wrote it in their book. So here we go. In the morning, Mr. and Miss Cox went for a drive, telling me that I could have the day to do as I pleased. The shores of Canada had been tantalizing my longing gaze for some days, and I was bound to reach there long before my mistress returned. So I locked up Mrs. Cox's trunk and put the key under her pillow where I was sure she would find it, and I made a strike for freedom. A servant in the hotel gave me all necessary information and even assisted me in getting away. Some kind of festival was going on, and a large crowd was marching from the rink to the river, headed by a band of music. In such a motley throng I was unnoticed, but was trembling with fear of being detected. It seemed an age before the ferry boat arrived, which at last appeared, enveloped in a gigantic wreath of black smoke. Hastily I embarked, and as the boat stole away into the misty twilight and among the crushing fields of ice, though the air was chill and gloomy, I felt the warmth of freedom as I neared the Canada shore. I landed without question, and found my mother's friend with but little difficulty, who assisted me to get work and support myself. Not long afterwards, I married a prosperous farmer, who provided me with a happy home where I brought my children into the world without the sin of slavery to strive against. And then she also goes to talk on about her mother's response to finding out that Nancy had escaped successfully into Canada. And of course, in front of her enslavers, she was very demure, sad, and angry that her daughter dared escape in such a way. However, as Lucy states in her book, I was a small girl at the time, but remember how wildly Mother showed her joy at Nancy's escape when we were alone together. She would dance, clap her hands, and waving them above her head would indulge in one of those weird Negro melodies, which so charm and fascinate the listener. So she tells this amazing story and, you know, basically mirrors what Joseph already said to us about her escape. But then she goes to talk about what happens with her mother and, and Lucy herself. So apparently her mother makes a break for freedom. She gets pretty far, but unfortunately she does get caught. And there is kind of a scuffle between people who don't think that she should be sent back. And then of course her enslavers who are trying to get her back. So for fear that something negative would happen to Lucy, she decided to return back so that nothing bad happened to her. And then from that point, she decided to sue for her own freedom because apparently her mother had been kidnapped as a freed black woman and they kidnapped her, forced her into slavery. And then through that, she had her two daughters and the two daughters then were also considered to be enslaved because they were born to an enslaved mother. So the mother sues for her own freedom and she succeeds because she has ample evidence that she was born a free woman, but then becomes a huge process of trying to get her daughter, Lucy, to be freed as well. So then they end up hiring this lawyer and trying to get the daughter to be considered free legally on paper as well. And her previous enslavers are fighting it tooth and nail. And she ends up spending 17 months in prison as a young girl while her mother and their lawyers and her previous enslavers are all fighting. But in the end, they prevail and they're both given freedom and they they live out the rest of their lives in freedom and continue to be freedom fighters for those who are still stuck in that horrific situation. 
So this book goes all over and tells the, the true story. And she is a fantastic writer. So I really suggest that everybody give it a check. It's completely free. So I just wanted to share that with you. And in closing this little tidbit, I wanted to read another section from her book that is one of the last lines that she says at the end of the chapters. And it says, Considering the limited advantages offered to me, I have made the best use of my time, and what few talents the Lord has bestowed on me I have not hidden in a napkin, but used them for his glory and to benefit those for whom I live. And what better can we do than to live for others? All right, let's get back to the interview. So I'm kind of curious about this melting pot that you have in Niagara Falls of individuals who are freed, individuals who are still enslaved, and the Cataract House. So I saw in some signs outside that they only employed black people, yes. right? Yes. So what was the whole situation with the grouping together and then the Cataract House? Hotel? Cataract. I think it was mostly just the Cataract House, but... I tend to stick hotel on the end of the name, and sometimes we hear that. We did actually also just get, that burnt, that hotel burned down in 1945, and the historic marker was just installed three weeks ago now. Um, but yeah, so so the, the community here, um, we're gonna have that free black community who is gonna be working in all those businesses that we associate with tourism, right? Hotels and restaurants and gift shops, all that kind of stuff. And they're gonna be an important part of the story because of how laws are changing in New York State. So at one point, obviously, slavery is legal throughout the United States. It's legal in Canada. Various states are going to decide to get rid of it. New York State goes through a process with this. So in 1799, anyone born to an enslaved person is going to be considered born free. They'll be in this state of like indentured servitude until a certain age, but it won't be the same chattel slavery that their parents were under. Then by 1827, everyone is meant to be freed, right? So after that point, we have a free black community here. Except there's this other thing. So you mentioned, you brought up, you said, well, how did the, the enslaved folks being brought here fit into this? New York state law says, yeah, anyone living here permanently has to be freed. Enslavers, however, can bring enslaved servants with them to the state, stay here for up to nine months, and those folks are still considered enslaved. So Nancy's brought here in 1837, that's the case. She's still considered enslaved part of why she has to get to Canada, right? That law will change over time. So I believe 1841 is when we get a law that says, no, if you're enslaved and you're brought here, you're considered free as soon as you step foot on New York's soil, which is going to create problems because abolitionists across the state are going to be looking out now for enslaved servants with their enslavers and approaching them to tell them, hey, you're free now because you're in New York. And it's going to cause problems. And I mean, I can imagine that's also going to bring down the tourist industry because the people who do have enslaved people are not going to want to come here so because... That's actually really interesting. Um, in the museum, we have um, an entire gallery that's made to look like the Cataract House. And in that space, we have tucked away in a corner a story about, I think she's 15. Uh, she is sent down to the kitchen to get a pitcher of milk, and she never comes back. She leaves at the door and goes to freedom. And her enslaver goes back home to New Orleans and writes to his paper and says, hey, avoid the Cataract House because they're going to steal your enslaved servants. So there's this whole piece there that I usually tie this in with Nancy's story as well, is we're seeing into the mindset of enslavers, right? That man doesn't think that his enslaved servant, regardless of her age, really, is capable of thinking on her own that I want to be free. There's this idea of outside agitators sort of thing, right? It's something that we've seen. We see certainly with the, the civil rights movement. We see, um, we've seen it in the last year with the protests that there's this outside force and 
well, our folks in our area aren't like that. They behave themselves, right? And this is all rooted in those racist ideas. Um, but yeah, that's, that's all part of it. So we are going to have folks saying, avoid that place. They're going to steal your enslaved servants. Uh, Thinking that if they had never gone there, then their individual... Yep enslaved person wouldn't be thinking about freedom mm -hmm. okay or that they were just taken against their will and that they didn't want to be free because they enjoy there's with all of this there's this narrative of well we have to keep justifying why we're enslaving folks that look different from us it's development of racism right we see this with nancy's story with her enslaver saying oh yeah you have the day to do as you please right and it's her enslaver thinking well i give you a good life and I take care of you, why would you want to go leave and do it all on your own? That's too hard and you're not good enough for it, which is not true, but it's the justifications that are being used. So this makes me think back to when we did the Mount Vernon, um, Mount Vernon's estate um, mm -hmm. quite a few episodes ago. And while we were walking through the museum, I don't believe we talked about it in the episode, but there was an instance of one enslaved individual, she was younger and she escaped. Mm -hmm. And Martha Washington mm -hmm. was, like very very upset and her feelings mm -hmm. were really hurt because she didn't understand like how how could she do this to us how dare she like what doesn't she want to be here and it was kind of this whole story of um anger trying to trying to get her back and and everything so that's a really good that's a good thing to bring up i think because you know nowadays we look at it and it's very easy for us to con to condemn it which i mean obviously you should but trying to think in the mindset of an enslaver they don't even think that the enslaved people that they that they're they're in charge of or have you know taken want to leave. <laughs> yeah, it's when you look back at the psychology of it, it's really interesting because you see them justifying this, right? Um, you see, like you just said, Martha Washington saying, like, why would she want to leave me? Like this feeling of betrayal that that gets exhibited, and you see that in lots of other cases as well, but there's also still the constant fear of uprisings and revolts, right? And these two are existing at the same time. So the next story that yes. we wanted to talk about preludes to, you know, I preluded to it earlier when I was like, oh, well, what happened at the Cataract Hotel? Mm -hmm. So why don't you go ahead and start right. us off with that? So the Cataract House Hotel is a world-renowned hotel, provides amazing service, like we said, you know, folks as prominent as Abraham Lincoln are coming here prior to his being president, but only by a few years. So that's happening here. Um, and that hotel is hiring an all African-American waitstaff. And at the time, across the country, you see in lots of other northern cities that there's a lot of waitstaffs that are predominantly black. And it's seen as a very prestigious position to have, right? It's, it's respected. There we go. Respected. Uh, they're paid well. It's, it's, they're trained for this. And it's a very competitive position to have. See, when I saw on the sign out there that it said that they only hired black individuals, I wasn't sure if that was because they were actually like, we're going to be giving them a job and we're going to be giving them pay and it's, it was, a, it was a, to help bring them up or if it was because patrons would be more comfortable there because they were being waited on by a black staff, which they might be used to. I wasn't sure which one of those two it was going to be. No, so it's, it's definitely that they're giving these folks jobs um, and training them up and everything. Yeah, absolutely. And we have from that earlier registry that i mentioned with we have a blinken's name in it right from those people would write where they're coming from right and they would say what who was with them so their family members they would usually list by name and then they would say and servant 
and from that we can kind of deduce some some numbers of where folks are coming from how what percentage of visitors over the years came from the south what percentage brought enslaved servants with them all of that kind of stuff yeah so predominantly you're not getting folks bringing their enslaved like by the numbers so you have a only black staff a very very prestigious hotel mm -hmm. and they a lot of the workers there are a part of the underground railroad uh most of them yes uh so so of at the cataract house right like we said exclusively black staff up to 80 percent of the waiters had previously been enslaved at one point they're all being trained by the head waiter john morrison another black man and yeah they're waiting tables and they're taught to blend in and they do that very effectively and it allows them to be so successful as agents of the underground railroad um and we often refer to them as sort of secret agents or with kids you know we reference superheroes a lot honestly um because what they're doing is living out these double lives in a way and they're very successful at it uh, and they do a great job but there are going to be instances where they get into public altercations so that, that leads us into the story that we, the second kind of story that we wanted to share with everyone was an altercation that happened because of, a, it was a staff member? Yes. So one of the waiters, Patrick Sneed, he was a freedom seeker. He came up, he wound up settling in Niagara Falls, getting a job at the Cataract House. He's approached by U.S. Marshals who say like, they try and trick him at first and try to give him a tip for waiting on him. He's like, no, I didn't wait on you. So right away he's catching on here that something's not right. They then try to grab him and the other waiters are like, that's one of our guys, right? And you're not going back to slavery. And they grab him back and there's this kind of tug. The waiters kind of win that little scuffle. They get Patrick down to the ferry. They're like, we gotta get you across to Canada. The bounty hunters then say, well, you're wanted for murder. So now these cries of murder are coming up from the shore as Patrick's getting rowed across by the ferryman. So it's kind of creating like a little frenzy, right? Because mm -hmm. I mean, someone's gonna hear you're wanted for murder and crowds can be quite fickle. Yes. And so I'm assuming there was probably all of a sudden a ton of pressure from the outside mm -hmm. forces that might not have a say either way, but are screaming right. murder to this man. Right. Rowing this uh, re Sneed? Patrick Sneed, yeah. Rowing Patrick Sneed across. Yeah, and I mean, the ferryman doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know if this guy's actually a murderer or not. The crowd doesn't know actually if he is or not, but the ferryman makes the decision well in case you are i'm going back i don't want you on my boat like if you are i want you to face just whatever right patrick's rode back um he's arrested he spends 10 days in jail he because of his job as a waiter this is where things get really unique um because this is even something that we see today folks struggling with right is that he has money saved up from working he is able to use that money to find a lawyer who will represent him fairly he is then able to present that case to a judge who hears his case fairly, judges fairly, and says, hey, these extradition papers from Georgia are falsified. You're not actually, um, like, I don't believe you're a murderer, what have you, and frees Patrick. Patrick is freaked out at this point, obviously, and he's like, I'm out. And he goes and goes across to Canada. Broke, because he used all this money. Exactly. So what had originally happened was his previous enslaver wanted him back because mm -hmm. he you know he broke free went and mm -hmm. went to niagara falls mm -hmm. and then so in order to get a decree or a, a, a bounty on him to bring him back he lied and said that sneed was a murderer yeah so this is this happens in other instances as well 
It was particularly used to strengthen cases to try and extradite people from Canada who had escaped all the way across um, because Canadian law is not going to allow extradition for breaking the law for slavery for a while, um, as far as I understand it. So enslavers are then going to lie, say, oh, this guy's a horse thief or they're a murderer, so try and get it out on other charges that Canadian government may be, may be more willing to extradite for. So yeah, so Patrick's enslaver makes up this story. The papers are signed by the government of Georgia, and we have um, those papers actually in the space. Um, they were found on eBay. They were found on eBay, yeah. So, so wildly, so one of Patrick Snee's descendants came across these on eBay, whether he had an alert set up or something, forwarded it to the staff who was working in the museum and said like, oh my God, like these papers are online. Um, and they were actually being advertised as baseball memorabilia because the governor of Georgia who signed it, Ty Cobb is a descendant of. So you ended up having this documentation. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening to Sneed was the uh, judge that was presiding over his case was like, I can tell that this is fake. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to extradite you back. Mm -hmm. So then is he declared a freed man? Or is it just you're not, you're not you know, charged with these charges, so they drop it and then they let him go? I think it's more of the second. Uh, and then Patrick takes that to say, OK, well, I'm out, I'm out because I don't feel safe here. So we have these really cool two stories um, at this amazing Heritage Center, but I did kind of want to ask just to see what are some of the biggest myths that you guys get told or that people bring here that you kind of have to dispel? So Obviously, the Underground Railroad part. Yes, that's, <laughs> that is the biggest one. And like we said, that Amtrak station bit throws people off sometimes. Mm -hmm. Probably the next biggest one is folks want to come in and they want to see the quilts. We've probably heard stories of quilts being used um, as having little symbols in them saying which way to go. And those very likely were not a thing. So um, as far as any of your documentation is found, you haven't seen that? Uh, no, no. Um, there is an amazing article at Smithsonian Folklife uh, magazine talking about this myth and addressing it and saying not just the facts of the case but also why we want to believe things like that because we're trying to figure out this well we can't in our present day and age with gps and cars and planes and everything we can't imagine how did these folks know how to travel through the woods to get to some place that was safe right how did they make those connections and this sounds like this really convenient story that helps piece it all together and feels nice and neatly packaged um so we're far more likely to want to believe it. Well, the one that I remember from school and like, you know, in the history books, they always had that picture of all the different symbols that were like mm. carved into houses mm. and things like that. Right. So that kind of stuff, could it have happened? Yes. Were there maybe certain places that had that? Like more locally. Yes. Yeah. There may have been, you know, oh, this one guy did that so that you can be sure that that's the right house. But was it this overarching plan between everyone no because it was this really diverse network all over the northern states that is helping folks it's not they don't they're not all connected to each other they have their little routes that they send people along and they're connected to those specific people in in my mind not even just the states right i mean it was also canada and mexico yes who were who were part of this mm -hmm. yeah so yeah, that would be really, really hard to have a simple set of instructions that was across state lines, across country lines. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make more sense. And maybe that was like, if it happened, it was more real. Yeah, the, the article actually addresses the one woman who 
wrote like the book about those symbols that was then latched onto by everyone else and she has since said hey i made a bunch of stuff up so Ouch. there's some actual real issues there but like i said i absolutely recommend that article it it does this amazing job of summing together the points talking to people in both camps who believe both things and then like i said addressing that overall but why do we want to believe mm -hmm. um and harriet tubman did she come through here or not? Yes, she did. She did! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so um, there's a lot to that. Harriet so, Tubman is honestly an episode upon herself. <laughs> oh, she's multiple episodes. She's an entire thing. Yeah, yes. no. Because what do we hear about all the time with Harriet Tubman? We hear about how she went back and forth, and that's amazing. But her activism did not stop with the end of slavery. She went on to be a women's rights activist and loads of other things. Um, she, I, I told you this earlier, but she's always my pick when I was young, when people would ask if you could have lunch with one famous person from history, who would it be? She was always my choice. It's an amazing choice. But yeah, so the release of the movie Harriet in 2019 has been an amazing thing um, to help us tell stories and help people visualize. When you watch that movie, she originally escapes, right? She gets to Philadelphia. She meets um, William Still. She meets William Still and he sits her down and says, okay, what's your name where'd you come from what do you want to be known as now right and william still is immensely important for understanding the underground railroad because that's what he did he was effectively an oral historian sitting down and cataloging these stories so that we would have them later his the book that he published with those stories is still in publication that is immensely important right um he helps her with the network with going back and forth right we have a story here of a man named josiah bailey and this is where trains actually do come in play. So what happens is Harriet makes one of her trips down to Maryland. She gets Joe Bailey, I think possibly some of his family members and some other um, freedom seekers. Gathers them together, they travel on foot, um, make it to Philadelphia. They get some money, what have you, either get on a train there or travel some other way to New York City. Get on a train and ride the train from New York City up to Canada through Niagara Falls. They take the International Suspension Bridge, which was built in 19, or 1848, sorry, designed by John Roebling, same guy who does the Brooklyn Bridge. And that rail line on there is gonna be so important to us. It hooks us into so much with the, the burgeoning rail network throughout the United States, right? Um, and that creates more opportunity. So we have that piece of it, right? We also have, why is she coming now all the way to Canada? Well, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 has been passed. And it makes things a lot more dangerous for freedom seekers, a lot more dangerous for the Underground Railroad folks, right? So what that law says is, hey, if you're caught helping a freedom seeker, you're on the hook for a $1,000 fine. That's about $30,000 today and possible jail time. It also says that if you are in a slaver in the South, you can write to the government, the federal government, and say, hey, I lost my property, they escaped, whatever, basically, Bottom line is, I did not free this person and they are gone. They're no longer in my employ. I want them back. Now the federal government has to send agents to go look for them. Now we mentioned earlier that law in New York State saying, hey, if you set foot here, you're free. We've probably all heard this idea. Some folks say, right? Civil War was not about slavery, it was about states' rights, right? Fugitive Slave Act is a really good counterpoint to that argument. So it was about the states' rights, yeah, to maintain slavery. And the Fugitive Slave Act says that because they don't care at all, these enslavers, that New York State says, no, you're free when you step, step foot here. 
They say, no, I want the federal government to send in agents and override your local laws and capture these people. Because they were property to them. Exactly. But what ends up happening as well is, so there's that part of it too, but they're going to absolutely capture people who were never enslaved in the first place. One of the most famous instances of that being Solomon Northrop, with 12 years of slave, right? Well, what are you to do? Besides teach people history and share knowledge. Mm Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for being a part of my podcast. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And thanks for teaching us all about um, the not underground, not railroad. (laughs) Except this one, which is on a railroad. Except that sometimes has a railroad, yes. Yes, but thank you so much. (laughs)